0: Well, good morning, welcome, uh, it's good to see everybody, um, and uh, as, as you can see, Tim is here, it's not like Tim is out of town, and so they, they called in JV. Uh, in fact, uh, the only reason that I'm up here is because of the topic this morning, and because I promised to do several loads of laundry and wash his car a couple of times <laughs> next month, so so that's why I'm here. Um, my name is Brett Wellstead, for those that don't know me, I'm the pastor of worship, and uh, I'm, I'm speaking this morning because uh, the topic is communion. And uh, this is something that really excites me and, and really fires me up to think through and to talk about. So um, I want to start with just a little background and a little story. Um, I have two sons in high school uh, right now. Cole is a junior and Jack is a freshman at East. And uh, in some ways, our high school experiences are very different. Um, my entire K-12 through 12 uh, student body could is less than one of their uh, classes, so one of their grade levels. So I, I went to a small school. But that I, I had a lot of opportunities that they have as well. Uh, um, sports, I was, I was not a sports guy, and I realized that quickly in junior high, and that was difficult. Um, but I started to fall in with uh, band and uh, music and the arts and speech and drama and realized this is a place for me. Um, so I was in, you know, marching band, concert band, jazz band. Uh, I was in speech and multiple events. I did every one-act play and every spring play that came along, and I was in the choir and the show choir. I just, every opportunity to do music or speech or drama, I did it. And all of those activities have something in common. Rehearsal. Like, every morning, uh, every afternoon, in the evenings, um, with students, by myself, with teachers and coaches... We were just rehearsing all the time, um, so many rehearsals. I remember uh, speech rehearsals in particular, I'm not sure why, but those stick out in my mind. One event that I was in in speech is called the Oral Interpretation of Drama, OID. And what you do in OID is it's three to five students who face the audience the entire time. Um, there's minimal blocking And uh, you can't interact with the other actors, like you can't make eye contact and stuff, you're always facing the audience, so it's the oral interpretation of the drama. And uh, I I love this event. Um, I remember uh, my junior year, we did a piece called The Importance of Being Earnest by Oscar Wilde, and it was, uh, the rest of the the team were seniors, it was uh, Haley and Michelle and Kendra, and one of my best friends, Paul, and I. And what you do is you pick out a piece at the beginning of the season, and then you stick with that, if at all possible, through the entire season. So it's a 10-minute piece. Within a couple of weeks, you have the thing pretty much memorized. And, uh, and so then the challenge is, let's make sure that we're doing this well each competition, but you can go overboard, and it starts to become kind of stale and boring. And, uh, and so you, you kind of uh, you, you stop focusing on it. So we came up with, like, creative ways of rehearsing. Um, one time we rehearsed the whole thing with with accents, uh, which were terrible. They were terrible accents, but we did it. Um, I, you know, it was, it was Oscar Wilde. It was it was easy to put on a British accent with some of these uh, pieces. Um, another time we traded roles, so we tried to act the way that our partner um, would would act and would present their lines. Um, another time we just walked around. Uh, we, we went to the, the basketball court, and we just walked around the center circle the entire time that we were practicing, just so we would keep our brains going on what we, we needed to do and to do it well. Um, so over time, you, you just get really, really familiar with it. And that was the important thing. We kept rehearsing. Over the course of the season, this piece became ingrained in us, and we got better and better performing it until we, you know, went to state and then lost at state. But... But it was fun. Um, And I share this as an analogy, of course. Worship, corporate gathering, and the practices that we engage together on Sunday mornings, uh, it has a lot in common with those rehearsals. Because in many ways, worship is rehearsal. When we worship, we rehearse or enact God's story. But not so that we can perform, we rehearse it so that we can be formed. It becomes ingrained in us through repetition and intention. Corporate worship is a spiritual discipline and as with any discipline it changes over time. God uses this time to shape us into Christ likeness. As we remember and sing and pray and speak and hear God's story, the story becomes more and more our story and we become more and more like Jesus. The Bible, the story of the Bible spans thousands of years. And what's amazing to me and what I've mentioned before, is how the entire story is held together by the person of Jesus. You know, I should have turned off my screensaver. That was a mistake. Uh, (laughs) The entire story is held together by Jesus. Different authors, different times, different audiences reading and hearing their words, but always the same story, connected in thousands of ways. One such connection happens at an event that we call the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. The Lord's Supper is so important that it is described in three of the eyewitness gospel accounts of Jesus' life, and again in a church letter from Paul written uh, later. In these four accounts, there's amazing similarity, which tells us the early church rehearsed it often. In fact, the Lord's Supper is an example of Jesus rehearsing part of the story himself. Understanding what Jesus did and why can help us to understand this table that's before us this morning and what we are rehearsing when we come to the table and how that forms us. So let's read about this in Mark 14, verses 12 through 26. I'm sorry, I don't know the page number in in the Bible in the seat pockets. Uh, Whoever gets there first, feel free to shout it out. A little uh, audience participation here this morning. What is it? Ten nineteen. Awesome. My wife, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Well done, Tracy. On the first day of the festival unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house as he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. This would be a good reminder that uh, if you are home and you're worshiping uh, with us online, um, now is the time to make preparations. Uh, We're going to do communion at the end of this service. And so uh, that's probably 45 minutes away. Just kidding. Uh, maybe 20 minutes. Um, so grab something, uh, some juice, uh, some bread, or something that we'll substitute this morning and, uh, and be ready to take communion with us. Okay, the sort of miraculous part of the story that we always fix on is how Jesus was able to describe exactly what the disciples would encounter when they entered the town. They would see a man carrying water. They would follow him to a house. That's pretty amazing that Jesus predicted it, and the disciples found that exactly as he had described it. But what I want to focus on is the occasion, the festival of unleavened bread when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. These two uh, occasions, the festival and Passover, highlight one of the major events of the Bible. We don't have time to go through it in detail, but it's found in Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. To summarize, the Israelites spent around 400 years enslaved in Egypt. Then the major... Sorry. Sorry. Then God called Moses to be his prophet and sent Moses to command Egypt's Pharaoh to release the Israelites. When Pharaoh refused, God sent a series of plagues on the land, the livestock, and the people of Egypt. The last and worst plague is foretold in Exodus 11. Every firstborn son in Egypt would die in the middle of the night, and all of Egypt would cry out in grief. But not for the Israelites. In chapter 12, God gives them instructions on how to avoid the plague and to leave Egypt. First, the Israelites were to sacrifice a lamb. They needed to take some of the blood from the lamb and paint it on the doorframe to their homes. And they were to cook the lamb and eat it. When the plague came over Egypt, God would pass over the Israelites' homes. He would spare them from death because of the blood of a lamb. Second, the Israelites were to prepare for a journey. When the plague came and when Pharaoh responded they would need to be ready to leave quickly. So they were instructed to make bread, dough, without yeast for a week um, so that they could easily take any unbaked dough with them when they left Egypt. In that same chapter 12 in Exodus, God also instructs the Israelites that the Passover meal and the festival of unleavened bread were to be observed every year, a lasting ordinance. The Israelites were to teach their children what the meal meant, what the festival meant, the Passover meal was to remind them that God rescued them from death and from slavery. So this was a big holiday for the Jewish people of Jesus' day. It marked the beginning of Israel as a sovereign nation, a people following God into the wilderness, learning to worship God alone. Passover remembered how God delivered them from Egypt. Esau Macaulay writes in Reading While Black that the Exodus was a core part of Jewish identity. At the core of their story is a God liberating them, freeing the slave. When they are instructed on how to treat foreigners in their land, they're told to treat foreigners kindly. Why? Because, God says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And when the Israelites needed hope in dark times, they were told by God, remember that I rescued you. Celebrating Passover was a way to cling to the promise and prophecies that God would again deliver them this time with the coming of a messianic king. In Jesus' time, the Jewish population were not slaves in Egypt, but they faced similar oppression under Roman rule. So the Passover was a moment to proclaim, God delivers, the Messiah is coming. That's the context of Jesus and his disciples making plans and preparations for this meal. So looking back at the passage, verses 17 to 21, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. If you are eleven of the twelve disciples, this is a troubling revelation. Uh, What does Jesus mean by betray? who could it be? But Jesus is not surprised at all. What's surprising to me is that Judas is there at the table, that Jesus dips bread into the bowl with him. I mean, that's a close relationship. You're sharing meals together. Judas had followed Jesus and been part of the inner circle of his disciples. Jesus taught, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, and here is Jesus practicing exactly what he's preaching. He knew that Judas would betray him, to be tortured, mocked, crucified. And yet, Jesus invited him to the same table as Peter, James, John, and the rest of the disciples. That's amazing love. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man, and again, What an example of amazing love. Jesus knows what is about to happen to him, the pain that he'll endure, the sacrifice that he's going to make, and he says he'll go. Going on through the passage, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. As I mentioned before, this moment is so important that it shows up in four places in the Bible. The gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it. And Paul describes the practice in uh, secondhand in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 26. I did a comparison of these uh, passages a couple weeks ago. Um, can we get the graphic? Yes. Okay, so I know you can't read this. But here are the four passages side by side. And it's amazing to me the parallels of ideas and events that happen in these four accounts. Um, Each of those colored highlights up there represents something that is similar in in multiple passages. Uh, Matthew and Mark are almost word for word uh, alike. Which, again, just incredible. So why? Why would the gospel writers... And Paul takes such care to recount this meal? Well, again, it's an important meal, but more important is what Jesus does, how he takes the familiar patterns and does something new. Jesus took the unleavened bread and gave thanks, and the disciples recognized this is the symbol of God's mercy and deliverance. The story of the Exodus resonated deep within them, touching their heritage and even identity. They were the people of God, descended from the Israelites, who left Egypt. But Jesus does something different then. He breaks the bread and he says, take it, this is my body. The bread represents God's mercy, but also Jesus' body. Prepared in haste to remember deliverance, but also broken. Hours before his death, Jesus uses these familiar symbols to tell a new story. In the same way that God rescued the Israelites from death and slavery, Jesus reveals that God rescues the world from death and sin through the breaking of Jesus' body on the cross. Next, Jesus took a cup and gave thanks. And the disciples recognized, in Old Testament, Psalms and in the prophets, the cup is often a symbol of blessing. But Jesus did something different then. He passed it around and he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Covenant is a word that we don't use very often, even though it's part of our church name. Uh, it's basically an agreement. After Moses and the Israelites were led out of Egypt, God gave them the law, a series of commandments. If the Israelites would follow them, and if they would offer sacrifices and atonement for sin, then God would bless them and keep them and make his face to shine upon them and give them peace. That's, that's the covenant with Moses and the Israelites. The new covenant, though, that's all God. Jesus followed the commandments perfectly. Jesus was without sin. There was no need for atonement with Jesus. And yet, he died. A sacrifice, not for his own sins, but for ours. So covenant, blood. As the blood of a lamb or a sacrifice meant God's mercy to the Israelites, Jesus uses the cup to reveal that his blood means complete forgiveness of sin. A new covenant between God and humanity. We've been in this series, Who Do You Say I Am?, that has taken us through the Gospels of Mark. And this is one moment where the identity of Jesus comes through loud and clear. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. He is the Messiah, the Christ. He is the Lamb who is slain, but also the King who comes in victory over death. And one day he'll come again. Don't miss this, how this closes out here. Mark 14, 25 and 26. Jesus says, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. First of all, I love that there's singing at the table. Uh, We were always told that's a no-no growing up, but here you have Jesus singing at the table, so go for it. Um, Second, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is what I don't want us to miss. Jesus is talking here about the age that will come and has come in Christ. It's new creation, the kingdom of God. Not only did Jesus foretell his death in the bread and the cup, he foretold his resurrection and the coming kingdom of God. In Isaiah 25, this new creation is described as a feast. Isaiah writes, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. The meal that the disciples are having together rehearses the Passover, but it also rehearses another meal that will mark the new kingdom fully here. So, if Sunday morning is a rehearsal of sorts, what are we rehearsing in the Lord's Supper? 2,000 years later, what are we practicing when we come to the table? And how does it form us? In his book, uh, Rhythms of Grace, Mike Cosper describes the Lord's Supper beautifully. He writes, we gather at a table whose roots stretch not only to the first century, but all the way back to the Exodus. Jesus was feasting with his disciples on the Passover, a meal that God gave Israel to protect them from the plague of death and to forever remind them of his mercy. It's a meal that has continued in the church for 2,000 years, and it's a foretaste of a meal that will be eaten in the New Jerusalem at the wedding feast of the Lamb, past present, and future come together at the table, connecting Israel's Passover to the body and blood of Jesus, and offering a through-the-glass-darkly foretaste of the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's a beautiful, tangible, concrete gift where we can physically remember the gospel story. So are we rehearsing the Passover? Yes. Are we rehearsing the last supper Jesus had with his disciples? Yes. Are we getting ready for the feast to come in the new kingdom? Yes. The Lord's Supper tells the whole story of the gospel and how we fit into it. It's an opportunity to look back, to look around, and to look forward. So there are a few purposes that I have in mind, that I want us to have in mind when we come to the table, at least, at least one of these every time that we come to the table. One is memorial. We look into the past to remember how God has saved us. Not only does it remember how God delivered the Israelites from bondage and death, it remembers the body of Jesus broken on the cross. Luke 22, 19 says, This is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. A second purpose is communion. We look around and we see how we are all one in Jesus. There's a reason that Jesus used one uh, piece of bread and broke it and handed it to his disciples. There's a reason that he passed around one cup. Um, there's a reason that sometimes we pass the cup to each other in our seats. Sometimes we come forward to the one table. It, it reminds us that we are all one in Christ. It, it causes us to look around, to see each other. Um, Ephesians 4, 3-6 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body, there's one Spirit... Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So communion, it reminds us that that we are are one. A third purpose of the Lord's Supper is Eucharist. We look into the future with thanksgiving of Jesus' return. The word Eucharist comes from the Greek uh, Eucharistia, which means thanksgiving, um, it's a word of celebration and joy, not one that we use in our tradition as much, but but it's a great word. I think. Um, in First Corinthians, we have this language about the Lord's Supper: for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I love that. This bit of bread and juice is a foretaste of a feast that's to come when God's kingdom arrives in its fullness. I've been to churches of other traditions where, after the Lord's Supper, everyone shouts, "Christ has died." Christ is risen, Christ will come again. There's a reason that we that's the reason that we celebrate and give thanks. Jesus is the hope we stand on. He's coming again with justice and blessing and peace. So all of that is wrapped in the coming to the table. But maybe the question we close with is why? Why would I get so excited to talk about this on a Sunday? Why is it important to ponder the bread and the cup? And the depth of significance Jesus brought it when he shared it with his disciples, when he shares it with us. I remember, uh, so again going back to speech, my junior year I did a a humorous prose piece. And uh, again, you're facing the audience, you do all the characters yourself. Um, It was the kind of thing that set me up really well for reading bedtime stories uh, later in life to my kids. Um, so, all the characters, and, and you have this piece, and, and it was time for me to get off script. And so, my coach had said, Go without script. And I said, Okay. And so, I remember clearly um, you, you end up in a classroom for a lot of these events. So, I'm sitting at the front of a classroom. Um, there's the judge, my best friend Paul, and a couple other students probably compete, competing in the round with me, um, in the room with me. That's it. And uh, I'm about halfway through this piece that's all about uh, a, a school Christmas pageant that goes terribly wrong. And I hit this point where I just totally blank. I just can't remember what comes next. And a few seconds go by, and a minute goes by, and two minutes go by. If we had enough time, I would demonstrate how awkward that feels. (laughs) And then I hear this voice from the crowd that says, from the crowd of four people that says, try and pick up somewhere. And I look up, and it's the judge of the round. I've never heard a judge talk to a person during—I the, mean, they're not supposed to. You're not supposed to interrupt, but he could see I was struggling. And I looked at my friend Paul, and he had this great expression of empathy and anxiety all wrapped up into one. Like, I could tell he feels my pain right now. And then all of a sudden it clicked, and I just kept going. And, and of course, I lost the round. I was, like, way over time. But, but it was so awful. And the reason that it happened is because I hadn't rehearsed it. I hadn't practiced it enough, and the message was lost to me. And it was lost to those around me as a result. And that's part of what's at stake here. You know, when God gave Moses and the Israelites the instructions for the Passover meal, he made it clear that the reason they should practice the meal is to know the story, to know who God is, to know who we are as a result. The passage in Exodus 12, 24 through 28 says, Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance. Do it when you enter the land that God is that I'm giving you, as He promised, as I promised. Uh, when your children ask you, What does this mean? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. So the early church recognized this too. Look at the passage in First Corinthians, where and see how specific Paul is in his letter. He writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. He's saying, I, this is what I got, and this is what I'm giving to you. This specifically. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Why? Because whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And by the way, isn't it wonderful that God uses something, that Jesus used something as common as bread and wine or juice uh, for this moment? Bread, in some form, is a staple on tables at meals across the world. Wine or juice is sweet, delicious, it makes an impression. James K.A. Smith draws attention to how God's story at the Lord's Supper uh, hits us more than just on an intellectual level. He writes, It's as if the story we've been hearing and rehearsing now comes with live illustrations. The tangible display and performance of the gospel in the Lord's Supper is a deeply affecting practice. The sights and smells, its rhythms and movements are just the sort of thing that seep into our imagination and become second nature. The story we experience is God's story. We live in a world of competing narratives, political narratives, uh, national narratives, narratives of race, color, philosophical narratives, world narratives. These, These narratives seek to explain who we are and why the world is the way it is. But all of them are incomplete at best. We gather each week to worship so that God's story can seep into our imaginations and become second nature. Our neighbors need to see who Jesus is in our lives. Our families need us to walk closely with Jesus. Our own souls need to remember how Jesus loves us, how good he is, how faithful he is. He's our deliverer. He's the lamb that was slain, the resurrected Savior. He's the coming king. That's why we worship, and that's why we come to the table. So, let's come to the table this morning. This is how we're going to respond to the message. Um, We're going to come to the table. This morning, we have matzo for the bread. It's an unleavened, flat bread uh, that uh, would be very similar to what the Israelites ate and what Jesus ate uh, with his disciples. And it's salted, which can be another reminder that you are the salt of the earth. Um, We're going to have everyone come to the table uh, by the center aisle, and uh, and come off to the side, and uh, Tim and Karen are going to be on one side here, and, and Tracy and I are going to be on another side, and we will hand you the bread. This is exciting. This is the first time on a Sunday morning since the pandemic started that we've done communion with uh, with the elements like we used to, and not what I call McCommunion, um, the, the ready-made communion uh, bits. So uh, we're excited to have you come to the table this morning. If you are gluten-free, if you need gluten-free, um, Troy is going to be right in the middle here, and he will hand you a piece of gluten-free bread. Um, and, and so you can do that. And we're just going to ask you to come forward and to come off the sides. And we're going to rehearse uh, the the words that remind us that this is about the past, present, and the future. So when I hand you the bread, uh, I'm going to say, or when Tim hands you the bread, we'll say, Christ has died. And when Tracy or Karen hand you the cup, they're going to say, Christ is risen. And I want you to respond with, Christ will come again. So, let me pray, and let's have communion together. God, thank you for the gift of communion. Thank you for the gift of the Lord's Supper, the reminder that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, that Christ will come again. Thank you for the life that we have in Jesus. Help us to proclaim Jesus to others until you return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23-26 For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this, is the, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. This is juice, by the way. It'll be wine eventually if I leave it out long enough, but it's juice this morning. Uh, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's do that. Let's proclaim Jesus. Let's come to the table.